Hello, everyone. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 8 of the Attempt Adventure Podcast, a podcast all about travel, finding adventure every day, and seeking out adventurous ways to make life more interesting. From Boulder, Colorado, I'm your host, James Barrett, joined as always by my co-host, Michael DeRosiers in Bangkok, Thailand. So what are we doing today, Michael? Well, today we are going to be sitting down to have a conversation with my younger brother, returning guest Kyle DeRosiers. This is, I believe, his fourth time on the show. So for those of you who maybe haven't listened to the previous episodes, my brother is a Fulbright scholar who is currently living and studying in Tel Aviv, Israel. And he's had some pretty interesting experiences over the past couple of years. But today, Kyle and I are sharing a conversation about language as an adventure or learning language as a means to adventure. And uh, I think a really fascinating episode about uh, just learning language in general, how language can open doors for us, and a little bit about his experiences learning Hebrew in Israel. We also talk about what he's been up to recently and some of his experiences in Israel in the last several months since he's been on the show. But first, James, have you done anything new or adventurous this week? No. No, No, I did not. (laughs) Okay. I... It is my turn to spin the wheel. It it is your turn to spin the wheel. So I'm not sure how to share this to you via link. Let me see. I can definitely, I don't believe that gives us functionality. I can spin it for you and screenshot it and take a picture of it to show you, to prove to you what it lands on. (laughs) Well, just (laughs) just believe me. I'll take a a picture for you. Okay. I'm going to take a picture to prove it. Good enough. Okay. Here we go, James. Well, actually, maybe we should explain to our listeners what the wheel of penalty actually is. Would you like to explain what this is? Yeah. So... Each week, we challenge each other to do something new or adventurous. If we do not do those things, if we do not do something new or adventurous, we have to spin the wheel of penalty. This comes from the past where Michael and I would just give each other penalties. We would decide the penalty and give it to each other. However, we're too nice. Mm -hmm. And the penalties always ended up being like, go for a walk or (laughs) take a picture of a bird or like, you Mm -hmm. know, something not really a penalty. So we came up with the, again, wheel of misfortune (laughs) and none of these things are bad except for one. If we do not do the penalty in the allotted time, we immediately owe the other person $50. So that's the worst that can happen here. There Mm -hmm. is a penalty, which is immediate $50. It's a small chance, but it's possible. It's possible. And that would be unfortunate, but. It is what it is. And there's also a reverse penalty where the penalty gets switcherooed. (laughs) Which means that if it lands on reverse, then I have to spin the wheel, even though I did something this week. Yep. Yeah. So there is an element of randomness. So James, well, (laughs) it is time to spin that wheel. Here we go. Wheel of penalty. Oh, man. (laughs) Well, James, you lucked out, my friend. You lucked out. I'm going to send you a picture of this and you will be pleased. Your penalty is... Okay. Make coffee outside. Yes. The easiest one. (laughs) That's an easy one. How long do I have, Michael? Um, For that, I think I'm going to give you one week. One week. All right. Good enough. I'll take it. Uh, So last week, I actually had a penalty as well. My penalty was to go hang out at a local airport for a while. And I have not done that yet, but that's okay because you gave me two weeks to do it because it's a little bit more... Uh, to do you got a lucky one you're you're in good shape that should Mm -hmm. be easy to do 
So next week, we will both talk about our penalties as part of our new and exciting and adventurous thing that we've done. But this week, I did do something new, actually. I joined the National Museum Walks for the final walking tour from my walking program, our neighborhood walks. Uh, We went down to an area called Prakanong, and it's kind of a canal neighborhood, a kind of quiet canal neighborhood. It used to be outside of Bangkok. Now you can get there still on the BTS pretty easily. But we uh, took a long tail boat ride down the canal, stopped at several different uh, temples and sites along the way. And it was really interesting. It was an area I had not really explored before. So I got to see a lot of cool stuff that I wasn't uh, familiar with. Some communities along the river. You know, there are areas where people have their homes right along the canal. And, you know, they have their mailboxes out on the river. And the mailman comes on a boat and puts the mail in their mailboxes right there on the river. Totally different from where I live in the city. Uh, But really cool. I think it'd be kind of fun. Although I know you'd get a lot more like snakes and monitors and things like that in your house. I think if you lived right on the canal like that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, next time I come... Mm-hmm. I have a tour guide. Yes, you do. James, why don't you, uh, do you want to give a reminder of the challenge and the uh, Kofi page? Yeah. Yeah. So just a little bit of a reminder of our monthly challenge, which is write a thousand words as a travel writer about the place you live, where you're from. A couple episodes ago, we did say a hundred words by mistake. If you do write a hundred words, we will also honor that as completion of the monthly challenge. It's great. And thank you again to Linda King for that suggestion. Mm-hmm. And just another thing. Um, if you would like to support the show, please visit our Kofi page, Kofi.com slash attempt adventure, I believe. Mm-hmm. You there you can donate to us so we can have a cup of coffee or a beer, something like that. You can also join different membership tiers where you will get some exclusive benefits from it. For those of you that don't want to support, we're not locking anything out or hiding any episodes behind a paywall or anything like that. Just some little extra stuff for people that feel like supporting us. And if you do, can't thank you enough. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. If you do buy us a beer, we will shout you out on the show. Mm -hmm. If you join the membership tiers, well, yeah, we'll give you little things. There will be an exclusive community where you're able to help us come up with questions for our upcoming guest interviews to make the show a bit more interactive. Uh, You will also, if you sign up for a certain tier, uh, receive physical postcards from us personalized, handwritten to you from around the world, wherever we may be uh, a couple of times a year. Yep. I will go ahead and apologize for my horrible handwriting, but it'll (laughs) be authentic. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, let's get into it, James. Uh, In this episode, we're talking to Kyle DeRosiers about some of his experiences recently in Israel. So without further ado, here we go. Enjoy the interview, everyone. I hope you like it. Attempt Adventure listeners, I am happy to be joined by our special recurring guest, Kyle DeRosiers, my brother from Tel Aviv, Israel. This is Kyle's fourth, I think, time on the show. I'm a big friend of the show, and uh, it's fun to be a recurring guest. Great. Well, before we get started, I see that you've got a drink there. What are you drinking? Well, it's only one o'clock in the afternoon, so I'm having a coffee. I know beer is your preference and your recommendation, but if I were to drink beer now, I would get too sleepy. <laughs> and so I can't. You know what I say? It's 10 a.m. somewhere. <sighs> it's 10 a.m. in, I don't know what, Italy, France. What is the earliest beer you've ever had in your life? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> maybe maybe when I was in college, I had something on the morning on, on homecoming or whatever. Um <laughs> But um, now I'm drinking Texas pecan 
coffee that mom and dad brought from. What's the name of the of the company? Can you remember? So it's Cafe Olay, courtesy of of H E B. And you know, it's a distinctively American thing to have a coffee aisle in the grocery store. I think there may be a coffee shelf in Israel, but there's nothing like this. So I really miss my bag of H-E-B coffee where you have dozens of flavors. I will say Thailand is definitely a coffee drinking country. So we've definitely got coffee aisles here. You know, most countries are either coffee country or a tea country. Thailand is very much a coffee country. Is Israel more of a tea country? I mean, maybe traditionally. Of course, now, I mean, now in the city and stuff, people love espresso. But Mm -hmm. in the past decades, people loved instant coffee because... This country was not a rich country until very recently. And, you know, there was always the, the war and there was always the, the struggle just to, to build and to survive. And so instant coffee <laughs> was and is still a lot of people's go-to. But now, of course, you have all these fancy espresso bars, but they're all from Italy. They're not, you know, from here, the, the beans and stuff. I'll be honest, I'm drinking instant coffee at the moment. Three in one, the little packets that have sugar. Of course, I'm also very poor, so, you know. (laughs) Anyway, well, Kyle, thanks for coming on the show today. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about adventures in language learning. Before we get into that, catch us up. What has been going on since the last time you were on the show? I know that our parents came to visit you recently. I know that you guys had a great time, saw some fun stuff. Well, mom and dad came to visit, as you know, a couple of weeks mm-hmm. back. We really had a whirlwind of a trip. We went to the Galil. We went to Christian sites in, in, in the Galil. Uh, we went to Capernaum, to Jerusalem, which is not in, not up there, but in the other part of the country. Showed them around right. Tel Aviv, went to a winery, Got to show them around. So it was it was a lot of fun because we didn't even think we would pull it together. And so they got to visit. Uh, that's wonderful. I, I wish I could have been there, but I had enough trouble just getting next door to Cambodia and back. So uh... Another cool recent thing is I, I got to go to a wedding a few weeks back for a friend of a friend. And it was my first wedding outside of America because unfortunately I missed the Thai wedding in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly because of the corona situation otherwise i would have been there it was really nice yeah and this wedding was really nice too even though i like knew people from a second degree of separation so i felt a little bit weird you know what actually i told you i was in a wedding in turkey right that i crashed they really wanted me to see a wedding and since we missed the wedding of the people we actually they knew we crashed right. it so i could see it You know, Thai funerals are kind of like that. You just go to the funerals of like a friend of a friend and it's kind of just a, I don't know, like a reunion. (laughs) Well, actually, this is, this is a big tangent, but last night I was having a beer with a friend from Georgia, the country, Mm -hmm. Washa is his name. And he was telling me that in Georgia, grave sites are generally, they have a picnic table right next to each grave plot. I don't know if you know this. He said that they would go four times a year and picnic on the tombs of their ancestors. Oh, that's cool. And and sort of akin to All Souls Day, as it's seen in a Mexican tradition, they will, they'll bring food and wine and, and sit there and eat, and they'll leave cups of fine wine on the table for other people who come to the graveyard to mourn so that they can drink in the honor of someone else's family's deceased relatives. 
Interesting. So it's an interesting thing. So it wasn't pouring it on the ground, though apparently they also do make some signs of the cross with wine on the grave. He said that, that this thing surprised me because I didn't know that they drink for someone else's family, like in, in their honor, and then they fill up a bowl of wine for them in heaven or something like that. It's, That's fascinating. Um, sort of, it is similar to that, right? Because people are mourning, not even for their own own relatives, and um, also receiving uh, some, some type of hospitality, I guess, from someone else's family. Culture is fascinating. And actually, hey, there's a segue. So I was getting a sort of an advanced certification for my uh, English teaching license. And one of the instructors made the comment that language is a passport. It unlocks culture. It unlocks the world for you. What do you think about that? Do you agree with that? Does language unlock the world? I think it does. And I think... To my opinion, I have some really brilliant friends who I feel like I can never be as brilliant as them in that they're fluent in more than one language. And so the aspiration I personally have, and I think the practical aspiration that most people have who don't dedicate their life to this, is that they're learning foreign languages to make a cultural bridge, to communicate respect, to communicate interest, to show effort. I think the aspiration is to do it out of a profound sense of respect um, and friendship with that other culture. And, and knowing that they'll, you'll probably never be able to communicate with them in their language, like they might be able to communicate with you in English, but yet it's a deep form of respect because it takes a lot of effort to learn a language. It's not something right. you can do in a day. And so I think, yeah, the passport thing is a cool way of looking at it. And so is, is a bridge. Um, sure. And you know, it's sort of like, you have to build a relationship with the language as you build a relationship with people. Absolutely. And, and like even if you don't get fluent, I think sometimes just learning the, you know, the quirks and the, you know, little specific elements of a language can tell you something. It can give you some insight into the culture, even if you don't really learn deeply into it. There's this idea that language and culture definitely influence each other, right? Language influences the culture. And there's actually two theories about this. There is linguistic determinism, which is hmm. that your language influences how you think of or how you see the world. So I actually found this really interesting study by behavioral economist Keith Chin, who is the associate professor of economics at UCLA. And he had this study that demonstrated, quote, a correlation between languages that grammatically mark future events and the speaker's propensity to save even after controlling for numerous economic and demographic factors. So languages that have a future tense speakers of those languages are far more likely to save money for the future even when you take out other economic and demographic factors all right that's a huge example of this linguistic determinism there's the other side of the coin of course which is linguistic relativism which is that it is arbitrary uh, and even uh, dr chen did publish another paper a few years later that said actually when it comes to culture there are just so many factors that it's really difficult to either confirm or reject this but but there are some examples that we can look at from the languages that i know and i, I don't know that many but look at german for example and maybe this is confirming a stereotype but how is the german imperative constructed always grammatically with an exclamation point, right? You cannot tell someone to do something unless you're like yelling at them. And how is that not just so German, right? <laughs> uh, another example, Thailand has a very hierarchical society. There are these different degrees of Thai language. There's even a Thai language called, uh, and I'm not sure if I know the tones on this because I, I never have to use it, uh, Ratchasap, 
which is royal Thai, royal vocabulary. It's the 700-plus-year-old language. Uh, it's barely changed in that time. It's very, very rigid. Uh, it's kind of a combination of old Khmer and uh, certain kind of royal prefixes. It is only used when speaking to or about the royal family. And so, of course, in regular life, wow. people rarely get the chance to use it or practice it. But, you know, that's reflected in the culture in in Thailand. And, and there's other examples of that, of course, as well, and in all sorts of languages. I don't know. Are there any examples in languages that you're familiar with where the language somehow maybe tells us something or reflects the culture? First of all, I would say the most obvious is that biblical Hebrew exists alongside modern Israeli Hebrew. Biblical Hebrew, which exists now in the liturgy, in rabbinic writings, in the Talmud from, from thousands of years back, it is sometimes able to be understood by Israelis, particularly secular Israelis without the religious education that would allow them to understand. But oftentimes the vocabulary is quite different. Mm. The grammar is different. And certainly the pronunciation is different. But just like Christian Latin versus Latin in the actual Roman Empire, we don't really know exactly how it was pronounced. It's just changed over the millennia so much that we don't really – of course, there was no recordings, right, of the Roman Empire or of ancient Israel to know what those languages sounded like. That's right. And, and when Hebrew was revived, you know, starting in the 19th century, of course, many words entered from German, uh, mm -hmm. Yiddish – Arabic, English, you know, many, many different influences alongside biblical words that were reinterpreted for modern meanings. Um, one funny example, which actually is now antiquated, is that, um, that a cell phone or like what we would just call a phone now, right? And in Hebrew, it's kind of similar. You have telephone, which mm -hmm. means um, wonder phone. The, um, the word uh, Pele comes from the word for magic or wonder. Wow. And so Hebrew, like Arabic, like Aramaic, um, like Amharic, the Ethiopian tongue, which is actually both also both ancient slash liturgical and contemporary um, in different forms, they have roots. And so Pele becomes telephone. And so literally it means wonder phone. And whoever wow. in the 70s or 80s would it have been the early 80s probably there was an israeli company called peloton and it was a sort of like tissue and kleenex it, it was a trademark thing and then it became the word for cell phone so How like cool. in turkish it's called like jep telefonu which is pocket phone which i think a lot of languages do pocket phone but the wonder phone is just so i don't know what corny i guess <laughs> now people just say phone telephone telephone for everything telephone and not not telephone, but the yeah. brand still exists called Wonderphone. Wow, that's super fun. Well, and by the way, I also have some some fun facts that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, more to do with roots and connections between between words. To me, these roots are so ingrained and so natural in Hebrew, unlike in other languages. And, and I guess they exist in English. We just don't know. But in the the Semitic languages, you have three consonant roots which turn into nouns, adjectives, adverbs, you know, each, each one, they're coming from all the same root, and so you, you have to interpret it. So this one is a little bit harder to explain, but I remember I was in the car with mom and dad when they were visiting, and I, I pulled out my notebook from Upon, my Hebrew class, and I was trying to explain what I learned from my teacher this day, was that, okay, so in Hebrew, emet 
is truth, and shaker is lie. Now, imet is made from alif, mim, tav, and, and these consonants all have in the, the printed Hebrew, like in the Torah, they're flat on the bottom. The, the center of gravity, you could say the letters, is like on the bottom of them. But um, the consonants to make shaker, to make lie, there's shin, kuf, resh. And the kuf has a big, long leg hanging down like a P or a Q. Hmm. And um, what they say in Hebrew is that le shaker in regalim. And so it means that lies do not have legs. Hmm. Like lies, you can't support yourself. Um, right. You're making a big mistake to lie because it's not stable. But the yeah. word for truth is physically or, or in, in the, the, the script more stable. Interesting. And so this little, how would you call it, adage? Is that the right word? It, it has a visual representation, which I thought was really fun. Another word that is interesting is kosher, like kashrut, the dietary laws. Yeah. It's similar to the word for fitness. The word for gym is cheder kosher, like a, a fitness room. And so it's related to what is fit, what is suitable. And, and healthy and good. Yeah, but also like we think of kosher and kashrut, that's a very religious thing. And it's, right. it's literally like what's suitable and what's appropriate. Similarly... The word for holy relates to the word for the blessing of the wine on Shabbat, the Kiddush. But also it means separate. And so there are times when you could say like something is, is separate, like the Shabbat is separate from the secular time. And, and in something that is physically separated in some context, you would use a related word. And when you begin to understand these things, you begin to understand both sort of the magic of Judaism, but also the fascinating part of this language that there is this deep meaning, and it can be very poetic. And I don't think people, Israelis, realize it. I mean, to tell you the truth, like, one more thing before I bore you is that I love, <laughs> I love an expression called la sim lev. It's very popular. Like, sim lev is imperative. Pay attention. And in Hebrew, heart is lev. And la sim is to put. So it literally means, like, place your heart. Um, so to pay attention, you say, like, sim lev. You're telling them to place their heart. So when you love someone, you pay attention to them. You give them your heart. When when you love a subject that you're learning, you know, you're putting your heart there. And I, maybe Hebrew's not unique. Maybe it's just unique because it's what I'm learning. And I had a fantastic teacher who pointed all this out, you know, and, and he would love to talk about the biblical names, which always mean um, something. Every name has meaning too. One, two more things I'm, I, before we move on. United States, which is the most strange to me, is called Edzot Habrit. And like a brit milah is, is a circumcision ceremony in Judaism because it means covenant. So the United States is the country of the countries of the covenant. And so it's like United States is circumcision country, which is just very, very strange. But of course, nobody thinks of it in those terms. But like the words are the same, you know. So, so it's really quite interesting. And, and, and I have a good time with it. Gosh, I mean, linguistics, I could go on and on. Linguistics has always been kind of a um, an area of interest for me. I've never like studied it academically beyond just like an introduction to anthropology course or, you know, that it's popped up here and there in my postgrad studies. But I've always found it to be so interesting. Learning Hebrew makes it a lot easier to understand the English translations of the Bible that you oh, just say, 
why is it phrased like that? Because in Hebrew, this is like grammatically and, and conceptually how things are understood. And so some mm-hmm. weird phrasing, which can be horribly translated into modern language and modern biblical translations, makes a lot more sense in, in versions that are closer to the Hebrew translation. And so it makes it easier to, in some ways, understand. And even though I have very beginning knowledge, I can begin to say, yeah. okay, that's why there's some weird grammar in that in the liturgy or in the in the Bible. Because they were trying to like perhaps preserve it as literally as possible when they yeah. translated it. Fascinating. Well, that's really cool. So, what has your experience been like? Your language learning journey? Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, it's not been easy to learn. <laughs> it's difficult language, but you know, the language of Hebrew is such a fundamental part of Israeli and Jewish sort of philosophy. And in terms of the founders of modern Israel, in terms of the, the, the first people who began to cultivate and redevelop Jewish society in this land in the 19th century, you know, Hebrew was, was so important. And, and, and Hebrew was very important for people under persecution in, in Iran, in Eastern Europe, in Germany, you know, in, in Northern Africa. And the attachment to Hebrew was so strong that it endured for thousands of years of exile. In, in rebuilding the Israeli society, Hebrew was a huge part of it. And there's so much pride that goes with teaching Hebrew. Because of this pride, I think they really invest a lot into language learning, including for foreign students like myself. So I get that there's this sense of pride that's really connected to the resilience, commitment, the connection of the Israeli people to this land that they that they really want to share the language and they really want to preserve it and cultivate it. And now, you know, after after 200 years that this that this revitalization project has been going on of Hebrew, at least on a wide scale, you know, because it was always it didn't ever stop, but it wasn't revitalized as a spoken tongue, you know, until the modern time. Right now, other weird things have entered it from other languages. You know, you have so many Israelis who are secular, and you have so many Israelis who are religious, and you have Israelis whose ancestors immigrated from Arabic-speaking countries: Yemen, Morocco, Iraq, Syria, and you know, also uh, Persians and. And Europeans, Spanish Jews from from Morocco who, who preserved like their Spanish Jewish tradition, even though they were in Morocco. And because of it, so many things entered the language. And now even like things from pop culture into the language. So so it's become like uh, corrupted. I don't know what. Well, there's no such thing as a pure language anywhere, is there? Every language is influenced by others. I mean, have you ever looked at the original text of Beowulf or Dream of the Rude in English? It is unintelligible, right? There's no such thing as a pure language. Every language is, you know, quote, corrupted by its neighbors, by the influences. But that's part of the fun of linguistics is untangling that and trying to find out where these different parts come from. Now, I'm getting distracted. You asked me how my experience was hard yes. it was hard <laughs> I bet. But, yeah but to have an Israeli partner a significant other made a huge difference yeah it's it's not easy to learn a language but it's really fun to learn a language and it just it's so wrapped up with the historical and contemporary context with politics with with identity with philosophy it's really cool but I embarrass myself a lot I meant to tell someone in my class I had 
a headache the other day and I didn't know how to say it. And so I said I was sick in the head, <laughs> like, which was really embarrassing. That is, that's a rite of passage for every language learner. Honestly, some people who are learning languages, and I, I, I see this all the time with my students learning English. So many people are afraid of making a mistake, and they're so afraid of making a mistake that they instead will just not try. But honestly, you're never not going to embarrass yourself when you're trying to learn a language. It's something that happens to everyone. I mean, I remember that when I went to Germany, I told my host family that I was drunk instead of saying that I was full. I used the word right. full instead of sat, and uh, they laughed at me. <laughs> right. right. And honestly, I was shy at first. I still am. Sometimes I feel really embarrassed. Now, I don't yeah. sound good or natural, but I know a lot of words, and I know a lot of concepts, and I know a lot of foundations to understand what someone is saying to me. And I can respond. Even in improper grammar, even with a weird accent, I can respond. You know? And of yeah. course with friends, they always are patient with me. Especially like friends who maybe like are are Russian Israelis who like they didn't learn it themselves. So like I have one friend called Paulina and she like always would practice because she's like maybe her Hebrew's not perfect herself, you know. So because of that she's like always speaks to me in Hebrew even if I don't want to <laughs> when I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean that's awesome. Some of my my best leaps that I made in Thai language were with other people who were also learning it. Some of my colleagues in the office and we were all learning it and some of us were at the same level and we had a guy that was a little bit better and those years were the years that I improved the most. You know, it, it is kind of a puzzle though. It can definitely be tricky especially if you're dealing with a tonal language like Thai. I I can't understand. I I mean I mean it didn't well, obviously I can't understand Thai but that would be so hard. Well, you have to be—you have to be very careful. There's one word, a, a very famous one, kind of the one that everyone makes a mistake with early on, uh, and the word is suai, which means beautiful. But if you say it wrong, it means terrible. And of course, a lot of guys here are trying to flirt and they try to tell wow. a girl, "Oh, you look beautiful," and they say, "Yo, you wow. look terrible," and it's—it's <laughs> it's not nice, you know. It's not good. Um, another one is that the words near and far are the same word with a different tone. It's glide and glide. And so if you're saying like, hey, I want to walk to the bank, is it – how close is it? And they say, oh, it's very, very near or very far. I don't know. <laughs> if your ear is not toned to that, you can't pick it up very easily. <laughs> Why would you do that? That's just cruel. <laughs> My – actually, this is funny. My teacher, he always says like when something like that, when words sound really similar to other words, he's like, we, we do it because we want to confuse the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> Language learning, like we said, it is an adventure. I mean, other mistakes, I think one, um, and this isn't really my story to tell, but she told it a lot, and I've always enjoyed it, a uh, story by uh, Frau Abercrombie, my German uh -huh. professor. Did you ever study with, with Frau Abercrombie? She had retired by the time I went to Baylor. So Frau Abercrombie was from Heidelberg, Germany, uh, but she was married to uh, an American Air Force colonel. Uh, but she was at some formal event, and they were all in their dress uniforms. And I think one of the uh, young lieutenants, he had a bow tie, and it was sort of crooked. And she wanted to tell him that it was askew. But in German, the word for a bow tie is a fliege, a fly. And so she accidentally told him that his fly was undone instead of telling him that his bow tie was crooked. So <laughs> Which, of course, in, in English, at least in American English, means that your uh, pants zipper is down. <laughs> so we all embarrass ourselves, don't we? We all embarrass ourselves from time to time. And that's part of the fun, quite honestly. I mean, it happens even in English. 
I don't know if you've ever had the chance to talk to like a Brit or a South African or an Aussie who use so much slang that we can easily confuse ourselves. <laughs> and there's plenty of things that, that in English are a little bit rude in America that might be very profane in Great Britain. Something like that. Or those, vice, those vice versa. Like if you tell someone that you want to use the toilet in America, we're like, ew, that's gross. <laughs> Don't tell me that. That's why you got to learn these things when you're traveling, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, do you have any other uh, any other points you'd like to make about language before we uh, before we move on here? Off the top of my head, no. So so we can move on to whatever other topic you said was was next. One more thing that I wanted to ask you about was you sent me some pictures the other day. Uh, really cool pictures of the Great Mosque of Jaffa, and I just wanted to hear more about that too because that's super cool. Yeah, absolutely. So we went to the Great Mosque of Jaffa, which was built when the Ottoman Empire controlled this land in the 18th century, the end of the 18th century. This mosque was built, so it has actually it looks really Turkish style. Um, and if you want, I can send some pictures. You can put them in the show notes. Totally. And it has beautiful painted ceilings that look like flowers, red, turquoise, gold. It has a lot of wood uh, galleries, like balconies, like wood pillars. And, and it, mm. it, I think that's distinctive of Turkish architectural style, too, because of the political situation. Religious sites here are very sensitive, whereas in Turkey, the mosques are not places that are political in general. I mean, of course, there are plenty of religious leaders who mix politics, but I mean, in Israel, you know, there's security issues, there are security guards, there are signs posted that you have to be a Muslim to enter, both to protect the Muslim sites and the Jewish sites, both religious groups sort of have their own kind of rules. And it's enforced by Israeli uh, leadership, like such as during, during tensions in, in Jerusalem, only Muslims and not tourists, Jewish or Christian or otherwise, only Muslims were allowed to go to the Dome of the Rock, the, the Holy Mosque. And only Muslims are allowed to go inside. But when times are like more peaceful, everyone is allowed to go outside as a tourist, but only Muslims are allowed to pray there. And that's sort of the agreement that they made. And that's what the Israeli police enforces. And so there are Orthodox Jewish people who are angry because the Israeli state tells them that they're not allowed to pray there, but they, they do it out of deference to the Muslims who also revere this site. And so they, they restrict some, some of the Jewish practice in order to, to elevate the Muslim practice in that place. Anyways, here, unlike in Turkey, I don't really get to go into mosques because they are tense places and I don't want right. to intrude on religion in this place where religion is so polarizing. Right. But they invited my class from the university, a mixture of Israeli students, Ukrainians, Russians, Mexicans, Germans, Americans. So we had a, a huge group of people, bigger than I expected, and we got to go into the mosque and hear the Qadi, who is an Islamic jurist, like a Sharia jurist, hmm. who interprets Islamic law. Now, I don't know a whole lot about it, but in Islamic law, you have the Mufti, which historically, in places like Cairo, in places like um, Ottoman-controlled Palestine, 
in places like uh, all over this land, you had muftis, like there was a mufti of Jaffa, who had types of temporal, civic, and, and uh, religious authority. And they still exist, but now, of course, you have a secular government in Israel, because it's not a separation of, of religion and state. It's a place mm-hmm. where you basically have four main recognized religious groups, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and Druzim, which are much smaller, but play a significant role in society here. And in Israel, there's no such thing as secular marriage. There's no such thing as divorce or adoption outside of religious uh, law, even for people who don't practice the religion themselves, but identify with it because of who their ancestors were. And because Judaism is so integral to the Israeli identity and the Israeli nation, they also want to elevate Islam and Christianity for Arab populations to that same level. And so the Islamic Qadi, this guy, he's one of them, Mm -hmm. he's a jurist who also works in Jerusalem, and he's the Qadi of Jerusalem. And he handles 5,000 cases a year, mostly pertaining to things like marriage and divorce. Wow. So he told us about his occupation. And he has the authority to legally prosecute people. Wow. If, for example, someone is to... Generally, a man is to divorce his wife without her consent. He can be tried and sentenced to time in jail. Wow. What a complicated system. It is complicated. And it's really interesting because there is this type of authority that exists alongside a really secular society in other Mm -hmm. ways. Um, And he got to speak to this group of students about Islam, about sort of the value that this this uh, center in Jaffa placed on education and philosophy um, and how that related to the tradition of Islam, which tried to promote intellectualism and to promote dialogue and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then he told us about his role as the Qadi and, and hearing these cases. I thought it was very interesting to, to hear about it and to think like in Israel, there are rabbinical courts, there are Muslim uh, Sharia courts, and I, I assume there's a Christian um, type of parallel institution. And it's funny because as a Christian, I don't even know what the Christian one uh, here would look like because we right. definitely don't have anything like that in the West. Right. But there's something. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really foreign concept. And, you know, I'm sure it can be abused if you give religious leaders this kind of authority. But also, it's just one other angle from which to look at stuff. But, of course, it's a yeah. problem because there are thousands of interfaith marriages every year, but they have a really hard time to be recognized by the state. And, you know, same-sex marriage is not recognized by the state because they only have the religious uh, uh, authority to marriage, and it's only in in Orthodox Judaism or Orthodox Islam. And so... What if, like, an Episcopal priest performed a same-sex marriage? Would that be recognized? Like, if it's totally legal religiously, totally within the bounds of their Book of Common Prayer or whatever, would that be allowed in Israel? Would that be recognized by the government? Well, if you have a same-sex marriage or if you're heterosexual and you want a completely secular wedding or an interfaith wedding between a Jew and a Muslim... Get married outside of the country and then... Go to Cyprus or the United Kingdom. Mm. As far as the Episcopalian wedding here, I don't really know. I mean, obviously, you have freedom of religion, freedom of, of, of speech... So you certainly can. And many same gender weddings happen in Israel all the time, but they're just not recognized by the state. And, and so it wouldn't be 
like a legal thing. There are reform rabbis, um, yeah, but they don't have the same type of authority that the Orthodox ones do, you know. And it's it's a whole thing mm-hmm. that's related to this group of, of women called Women at the Wall who want to bring the Torah to the Western Wall, who want to read the Torah in public, which is 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 not allowed in Orthodox. Mm-hmm interpretation at least in in certain orthodox interpretation now it's changing but the legal status is that women have a segregated place on the wall from men and that women i think they would legally be allowed to to read the torah on the wall but they get harassed by by men and other women as well they get harassed like sometimes hurt um and every month they go and they they do like a protest but they just try to sneak a torah in and the, the security guards who don't not necessarily are against the women sometimes stop them because they don't want there to be violence. Don't want to cause any trouble. Yeah. Cause who knows, you know, every, every, every little conflict there could just spark into something. Yeah. Something big. Wow. That's complicated. It's, <laughs> it's complicated. Really... It's complicated. And it was so interesting to hear from the Qadi at this Islamic center and how, even though this land has belonged to the Egyptians to the Crusaders, to the Franciscans at some point in parts of it, you know, to the Ottoman Turks, to the Israelis. This position has sort of been handed down through all of these different nations and states, which have, or I don't know if states is the right word for ancient uh, empires, but these different nations that have controlled this land and so this position has been handed down. I really wanted to ask him what kind of interfaith dialogue he does, but there are so many people I didn't get to, sadly, because that's my interest. I can only imagine that he's so busy with his 5,000 cases every year that I'm not sure what else he has time for. Right, that's a lot. Oh, linguistically, though, it was mm-hmm. real interesting because he sort of co-led this lecture, the Qadi led this lecture with a professor from Tel Aviv University. Mm-hmm. And the professor, who was obviously fluent in Arabic, Hebrew, and um, English, he spoke to the Qadi, the Islamic scholar, in Hebrew. And the Islamic scholar spoke to him in Arabic. And then he spoke to the crowd, the students, in English, mm-hmm. since we were an international group. And students asked questions in English or in Hebrew. And the Qadi responded in Arabic or Hebrew. Um, but he understood English, but didn't speak back in English. And so when he, when he answered, the guy would translate it into English. Wasn't there like wasn't there an episode of I Love Lucy where they were somewhere and like they're trying to communicate with someone but they didn't speak the same language so like she had to say something to Ricky in English and then he had to translate into Spanish and like someone else had to translate from Spanish into some other language. It was very it's, interesting. It's, it's very sitcom like, Kyle. That that's a, quite a funny scenario to imagine. Wow, Kyle. Well, thank you so much as always for coming on the show. We're definitely going to put all those pictures up of the Great Mosque and everything on the website and. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on. All right, my friend. Well, thanks so much. This was a fun thing, and uh, it was nice sure to catch was, up with sure you, Sure was. You take care, and I'll talk to you soon. And we are back. James, tell me, how many languages do you speak? Um... One and two halves. Okay, that's two, mathematically. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no. But it's two halves of different languages. So what, German and 
Spanish? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And and I and, and half is very generous. Okay. See, I'm <laughs> I'm kind of there with you. I also can speak half of a half of German and some Thai. I I can get by in Thailand a lot more comfortably than I can get by in Germany. I actually have a degree in German language, which I'm a little bit embarrassed to say because my language skills are so poor. <laughs> but I actually have a minor in German language. <laughs> Studying a language scholarly and speaking it are very different. Very, and very different. I think different. that's why I'm probably better at Thai than I am at German, even though I've never studied Thai formally, but I've had to use it. I am also currently, let's see, how many days am I in on my Duolingo? Shout mm. out to Duolingo. Love it. Totally. I am 87 days into my Spanish. Nice. 87 in a row because it, it talks crap if you missing a day. Duolingo insults you. So anyone who wants to... <laughs> I'm just going to shout out the languages because there is a lot. Okay. For any of you interested in learning a language, they have the traditional languages. They, you know, Spanish, French, German, Italian. They also have Japanese, Chinese, Russian, Korean, Portuguese, Arabic, Dutch, Swedish, Norwegian, Turkish, Polish, Irish, Greek, Hebrew, Danish. We're still going. Hindi, Czech, Esperanto, Vietnamese, Hungarian. They also have Swahili, Romanian, Indonesian, Hawaiian, Navajo, Klingon, <laughs> High Valerian, Latin, Scottish Gaelic, Finnish, Yiddish, and Haitian Creole. But it's it's very interesting and just really just really cool. It and I will say that it actually makes learning it kind of fun because they kind of turn it into a game rather than yeah, whatever. Anyway. Exactly. I think that's awesome. If you speak other languages, <laughs> if you were learning a language, get in touch with us. We want to know. Yes. Yes, please. We would love to hear from you. Language learning is an adventure. And like we said in the episode, language is a passport. It opens these doors for you. It gives you the chance to interact with people and interact with cultures in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. All right, James. Well, it is time for our favorite segment, Adventures in the News. This week, it's your turn, sir. What have you got for us? Yep. So I have one. It's part of it is funny. Part of it is okay. not funny. Okay. Um, part of it is a warning about the wildness of America. <laughs> Ooh, okay. We've talked about this before, how America is very wild. Something that we're quite passionate about. The, <laughs> yes. Um, yes. A Wisconsin couple survived. Good. They're okay. good. I'm glad you started After a with bear that. charged through their window and attacked them. Oh, Lord. So, again, everyone is Okay. The husband and wife were injured. The children were fine. Everybody's okay. Or will okay. be okay. However, this right here, they looked out the window and they saw the bear eating from their bird feeder. Mm. They opened the window to yell at the bear to try and get it to leave. The bear did not appreciate this <laughs> and immediately turned around and charged <laughs> through the window. Oh my gosh. So it charged through the window. Yeah, it charged through the window. Then the husband shot and killed the That's bear. Right. I mean, it's... Okay. But I mean... Me personally, I don't think I would um, open the window yeah, in the first place. No. Let the bear have the bird feeder. Totally. Get your camera. Document that. That's awesome. Getting up close with nature like that, but also yeah. scary. <laughs> Not, don't, don't startle the bear. Yeah. Anyway, not really an adventure. I mean, kind of. Yeah. It, but It's an experience. But it's still news, and I think it is still a good lesson. I mean... We've said it so many times on this show. We'll probably say it so many more times. Do not mess with wild animals. 
Don't mess with bears. Don't mess with elk. Don't mess with moose. Don't mess with mountain lions. For the love of God, don't mess with mountain lions. Don't mess with, <laughs> um, <laughs> don't mess with anything, right? If you see an animal, Just leave respect it, alone. it, leave it alone and get out of there. Do not touch it. Do not get close to it. Do not come between it and its cubs. Just enjoy. <laughs> but anyway, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed the show today, please don't forget to subscribe and consider us giving us a review on your podcast app of choice. Maybe a five-star one if you're feeling generous today. It really does help us out. Before we wrap it up, just want to give everyone a reminder of the monthly challenge, which is write a thousand words as a travel writer about where you are from. Another reminder about the Kofi page, um, kofi.com slash attemptadventure. You can go there and just help support the show. We really do appreciate any support we get, and it just helps us keep making the show and make better and better episodes. You can find more Attempt Adventure content on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, where we're all Attempt Adventure, or you can visit us directly at attemptadventure.com. There you'll find pictures, videos, show notes, all our episodes. You can learn a little more about the two of us, and you have a handy little contact us link where you just click that, write your message, and get directly in contact with Michael and I. If you can't do that, you can email us at hello at attemptadventure.com. Yeah, we want your listener mail. If you've been on an adventure, write in, let us know. If you have a comment about any of our episodes, if you want to add something to anything we've said, please write in, send us your listener mail, anything that you want to share. We read every single message we get. We really, really do. And we appreciate any piece of uh, feedback. Any piece of mail we get is greatly, greatly appreciated. Again, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep Keep adventuring. adventuring.